Sometimes there are just things before you, you don't plan for them to be. You're driving down the street and there's this compromised billboard or whatever it is. You have a choice. Are you going to bounce the eyes or are you going to stare? It's all part of fleeing youthful loss. Again, God doesn't say to fight this sin. He says to flee it. Welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy, Senior Pastor of Community Bible Church in Beaufort, South Carolina. Today is part three and the conclusion of Dr. Brogy's sermon entitled, Avoiding Moral Failure. Pastor Carl has addressed the decline of morality in today's culture and how being careless or complacent in our walk with the Lord has the potential for us to become callous towards sin in our lives. Let's join Pastor Carl as he continues. We need to underscore another aspect of his callousness there in your outline. David's callousness is seen in that he waits to confess. He waits to confess. He's initially unwilling because he's so callous to confess his sin. God had spoken to David. He was under conviction. How do we know? Because of Psalm 32 and Psalm 51 describes what David's life was like when he was out of fellowship with the living God. His fellowship is broken. He's miserable on the inside. He's like a winter tree that looks dead. There's no fruit on it. During this time, he's not penning any psalms. He's not playing the harp and singing to the Lord. His heart's indifferent. And that's why in Psalm 51, in his prayer of confession over the sin of adultery, he makes this statement, make me to hear joy and gladness. Let the bones which you have broken rejoice. And then he prays, restore to me the joy of your salvation and sustain me with a willing spirit. And some of you are here today, maybe some of you are listening somewhere in the world on one of our campuses, and your heart is callous and it's indifferent. And the joy of the Lord that you once knew is just not there right now because there's unconfessed sin. And you think, well, I'll just wait. Somehow, you know, the statute of limitations will run out and everything will be okay with me and God. God did not forget. And the reason David was so miserable is because God was disciplining David. And Proverbs says, those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. And the writer of the Hebrews quotes that to remind us that if you know the living God, you will come under his divine discipline. You say people commit adultery every day and they don't see God's discipline. That's because they don't know the Lord. He disciplines those whom he loves, those whom he has a unique, regenerate, born-again relationship with at this time in human history. Now, God's not this passive onlooker. Look at chapter 12 and verse 1 and notice how things turn. Then the Lord sent Nathan to David. So in grace, God doesn't abandon David. God goes to David through Nathan the prophet. And he came to him and said, there were two men in one city, the one rich and the other poor. So we're introduced to these two men, and again, God takes the initiative. David doesn't say, hey, Nathan, come here. I need to talk to you about my spiritual life. No. God takes the initiative with this man. The rich man had many flocks and herds, verse 3, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb, which he bought and nourished, and it grew up together with him and his children. It would eat of his bread and drink of his cup and lie in his bosom. It was like a daughter to him. 
Now a traveler came to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take from his own flock or his own herd to prepare for the wayfarer who had come to him. Rather, he took the poor man's ewe lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. David explodes. He's so angry when he hears this. Then David's anger, verse 5, burned greatly against the man. And he said to David, as the Lord lives, literally by the life of Yahweh, surely the man who has done this deserves to die. He must make restitution for the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and had no compassion. So Nathan comes into the palace. He says, King David, there's a matter in your kingdom that I need you to adjudicate on. I want to tell you about a terrible thing that has happened in the land. And so he makes up this parable of sorts. And he tells him of this rich man who lived next to this poor man. And this rich man had everything he could wish for, a great many flocks and herds. But this poor man who lived next door had one little ewe lamb, a little female lamb, that he just raised from birth and fed the little thing. And, and then the rich man has a guest. And as in any Mideastern culture, you showed hospitality when folks showed up at your door. But would he take from his flock? No, he takes from this poor man's hand this one little ewe lamb. And David, the shepherd boy, is just in anger. He knew what it was like to have a little pet lamb. He is enraged. And he says the man must pay fourfold. Look at verse 7. Nathan then said to the man, you are the man. Thus says the Lord God of Israel, it is I who anointed you king over Israel. It is I who delivered you from the hand of Saul. I also gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your care. He inherited Saul's houses all his goods, he inherited Saul's wives, not that God is endorsing polygamy. He inherited them to care for his wives and the children. Everything that God records, he does not condone. Nowhere in Scripture does God condone polygamy. God never sanctions it, but he allows it under the old covenant because of the hardness of man's heart. Just like Jesus said to the Pharisees in Matthew 19, Moses allowed you to write a certificate of divorce because of the hardness of your heart. David wouldn't even be considered a believer under new covenant standards. But you see, on this side of the cross, the Spirit of God has a different relationship, not only with an unbelieving world in whom He convicts of sin, righteousness, and judgment, and illuminates the law of God written in the heart, but He also has a unique relationship with the church, the body of Christ. I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your care, and I gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if that had been too little, I would have added to you many more things like these. Why have you despised the word of the Lord by doing evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword. Now, that's important. It wasn't literally David's sword. It was his pen that wrote the order. But God incriminates David because when he writes the order, it's like he put the sword through the man's heart. Yet you have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword, have taken his wife to be your wife, and have killed him with the sword of the sons of Ammon. The whole story, it's this parable. It's an analogy painting David's own sin. God had given David a kingdom. God had given David power. God had given him wealth. He had given him Israel as all of his servants. And while it was, again, God's not original intention for him to have so many wives, he had many wives, and Uriah had only one. 
And like the rich man who stole the one man's lamb, here King David steals the one man's wife. And like the rich man who kills an animal, David kills the man. And David sentences himself by the confession that he makes. Verse 13, then David said to Nathan, I've sinned against the Lord. Notice, no excuses, no searching for a loophole. He doesn't plead, well, you know, we're all just weak. There's a broken-hearted confession here, so different from King Saul. Here again is a man after God's heart. Is he sinlessly perfect? No, he had many failures, but the direction of his life was different from Saul's. And ultimately, he is submissive to God's truth. And Nathan, Nathan, so Nathan said to David, the Lord also has taken away your sin. You shall not die. He's going to be spared from being stoned to death. Now, God's forgiveness was immediate. There's no probation period. God gives him everything when he deserves nothing. We call it grace. God's riches at Christ's expense. But it's not over. That brings me to the third and final point. I'm almost done. Stay with me. Beyond the carelessness of David's sin and the callousness of David's sin, we must not overlook the consequences of David's sin. Now, the consequences of his sin are not a pretty story. For Nathan says, verse 10, the sword shall never depart from your house. And then in verses 11 and 12, he underscores that there'll be continued adversity. And you can read all about it in chapter 16. That's a sermon in itself. But let me focus on the immediate consequences here in chapter 12. First, David loses the infant baby. He loses the infant baby. David had fallen under God's displeasure. And because he was a believer, it brought God's discipline. God sees and hates sin, especially when it's in the hearts of his own people. And by the way, you are never nearer to God's displeasure than you are in your profession with him. In other words, the closer you are to God, the more displeasing it is to him. Because where grace abounds, we should be all the more walking with the Lord. Because the grace of God that brings salvation, it instructs us to deny worldliness and ungodliness and to live holy and righteously in this present age. I mean, David had been so, shown so much grace, his heart should have been overflowing with gratitude. But there's ingratitude by the steps that he takes. Look at verse 14. However, because by this deed you have given occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme. That's what happens when we live wickedly before an unbelieving world. They say, ah, look at you Christians. Paul quotes the same text. Bunch of hypocrites. You give an unbelieving world the opportunity to blaspheme. Because by this deed you have given occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme, the child also that is born to you shall surely die. Look, when there's a scandal in the church, we've seen it in recent months with Hillsong. Australia is covered over with mockery. And some of the key pastors here in the United States with Hillsong all caught up in this adulterous scandal. And they're laughing, they're mocking, they're making fun. But God is gracious. He hates sin, but he still loves the sinner. He still loves David, but there are consequences that cannot be erased. And so this little baby that is born died. You say, why did God do that to the baby? God's ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. There's no telling what God spared this little child from. That child's in heaven. You'll meet that baby someday. We don't know his name. You'll meet that child someday. The scripture is clear. He went to heaven. 
But he's a little innocent, this son of David. And of course, he becomes a picture, he becomes a type, as David's life habitually does in a number of instances, becomes a picture of the son of David who dies as our substitute. And if you remember, the baby becomes very sick, he dies, but God's not finished. Remember, God said through David out of his own lips, the person who's done this wicked thing must make fourfold restitution. And so the baby dies, but it's not done. Of course, he has other children, and he has a daughter by the name of Tamar. And, and then he has another son by the name of Ammon. They have the same uh, father, but they have different mothers. Nonetheless, Ammon is sexually attracted to Tamar. And so he comes up with this evil scheme so he can have a relationship with her. So he fakes sickness. She comes in. She cares for him. She feeds him, and then he overpowers her, and he violates her. And David loses the purity of his daughter, Tamar, and so the second crop is in the barn. Now, remember, David said to the prophet, the man who did this thing ought to repay fourfold. David has another son. His name is Absalom. Absalom was handsome. He was witty. He was charming. But he hated his half-brother Amnon for what he had done to his full sister, Tamar. And so Absalom contrives a plot where he has Amnon murdered. And so he hires his servants to get him drunk and then to take him down. And so David loses the life of his son, Amnon. And so the third crop is in the barn. But God's not done yet with David. He had not yet reaped the full consequences of his sin. And so Absalom goes on in his rebellion and his wickedness against his own father, David. He sits at the city of gates. Why? To win the hearts of the people. Say, you need to follow me as king. And he tells the people what a crummy King David is and what a great king he'll be. And after a while, he wins the hearts of the people, and David has to flee one more time. And he flees for his life, and then it comes down to a battle where the forces of King David face the forces of Absalom. But before they go into battle, he calls General Joab in and says, Look, I know my son Absalom has done so much wrong. But please, whatever you do, don't hurt him. And of course, the historical record is given to us in Scripture. In the middle of the battle, this man with his long flowing hair gets caught in a tree, and he's hanging with his hair by the tree, and Joab comes and with three spears takes him out. And when the news concerning the battle comes to King David, he is not interested whether or not the kingdom is safe. The only thing he's interested in is, is concerns his son Absalom. And the servant comes and says, he's dead. And in his grief, he says, it's in the vocative in English because there's deep emotion here. And some of the newer translations leave out that letter O. But there's deep emotion in the Hebrew text that we communicate with the vocative as the NASB brings out. Oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, would I have died instead of you? Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. And the fourth crop is in the barn. David loses the life of his son, Absalom. Now, how are we going to apply this today? Let me make several applications. Number one, I learned from this section of Scripture that moral purity is often lost through choices we make with our eyes. Moral purity is often lost through choices we make with our eyes. David was known for his integrity, but he let his guard down with his eyes after he began to look after another man's wife. 
He didn't get up from the nap expecting to go after Bathsheba. She was just there on his rooftop. But he chose to stare, and it turned into lust, and it turned into adultery. And he had forgot what Job had written. Job lived during the time of the patriarchs, during Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. In Job 31.1, he said, I have made a covenant with my eyes. How then could I look and gaze at a virgin? Job dealt with this temptation very aggressively. He said, I made a covenant with my eyes. And as a Christian man, you can't say, well, I just can't help from looking. No, the Bible teaches you can. And so here's Job who doesn't live just clean outwardly. He lives clean inwardly. He'll say a few verses later, does he not see my ways and number all my steps? Yes, he does. So he dealt with this kind of temptation very differently than King David. David entertained his eyes. Job bounced the eyes. Remember what Jesus said in Luke's gospel? The lamp of your body is your eye. When your eye is clear, your whole body also is full of light. But when your eye is bad, your whole body also is full of darkness. The eye is the window gate. You let in evil or you let in good. So God is saying, we're not some helpless victim. There are choices that we can make. Sometimes there are just things before you. You don't plan for them to be. You're driving down the street and there's this compromised billboard or whatever it is. You have a choice. Are you going to bounce the eyes or are you going to stare? It's all part of fleeing youthful loss. Again, God doesn't say to fight this sin. He says to flee it. And that's what Job was doing with his eyes. But unlike Job who bounced the eyes, David lingers the eyes and he stares at Bathsheba. And darkness comes into his soul. So first I learned that moral purity often comes through choices we make with our eyes. Secondly, I learned God can forgive sin, but he does not, cease the, does not erase the laws of sowing and reaping. God can forgive sin, but he does not erase the laws of sowing and reaping. Oh, David had a good time with Bathsheba. There's pleasure in sin for a season, but the crop came in. Remember what Paul wrote in Galatians? King David's an illustration of this. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. David planted a crop, and he reaped the harvest. Because there's nothing that happens in this universe by chance. Just as there are physical laws that govern the physical universe, so there are spiritual laws that govern your relationship with God. Whatever you sow, you will reap. You will reap like you sow. You don't plant an apple seed and reap a pear tree. No, there's a locked-in likeness. You sow sensuality, you will reap sensuality. You cannot plant discord in your home and reap unity. You cannot sow hypocrisy and produce holiness. Whatever a man sows, that he will reap. You can't sow to the flesh and reap from the Spirit. Job says in Job 4 and verse 8, according to what I have seen, those who plow iniquity and those who sow trouble harvest it. David sowed seeds of immorality, but there was not an immediate result. There was an incubation period. You put a little tomato seed in the ground and you don't come out two hours late. Where's the sprout, man? I'm looking for it. Takes some time for the plant to come up. There's an incubation period, and we think, well, you know, I'm sinning with impunity, and nothing's happening. Just wait. 
David didn't see immediate judgment. And sometimes we don't see immediate consequences, and we think everything's fine. Then a year later, a baby comes. And God said in chapter 12 and verse 10, the sword will never depart from your house. And he lived with the consequence for the rest of his life. You put one little seed in the ground, you will not only see reap like you sow, you will not only see later than you sow, you will reap more than you sow. One little tomato seed will produce a stock, maybe 10 tomatoes on it. Hosea said, for they sow the wind and they reap the whirlwind. That is, paraphrase, they send in a breeze, but they have retribution like a hurricane. You do a little evil, but that evil is intensified. You reap more than you sow. You'll get more than you sow. You'll reap the same thing. You'll reap later than you sow, and you'll reap more than you sow. And we learn the laws of sowing and reaping is illustrated through the life of King David. So we have all these Americans... They're afraid. Pastors are afraid to stand up for what's right. So we had the son of a former Southern Baptist convention president, a good man, a good godly man. I've heard him preach. Sadly, his son was abused sexually by another man when he was young. But listen, where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. God could have helped that young man through that tragedy. And many of us suspected we were, he was gay, but he always said he wasn't. Then he comes out on his 39th birthday this past week, and he says, I'm homosexual. God has made me this way, and I am proud of it. I almost never respond on Twitter. But how could I not? All these preachers, we're happy for you. Andy Stanley says, we're happy for you. We're proud of you. And I wrote to that young man, I said, God loves you, God can forgive you, but God also needs to change you. And I put 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11, and then comes the responses. Boom, 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 boom. Remember what God said to Israel in Psalm 99? Oh, Lord, our God, you answered them. You were forgiving God to them, and yet an avenger of their evil deeds. God forgave them, but God took Israel to the woodshed. Because again, as Proverbs says, those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. God forgave Moses, but Moses never went into the promised land. He dies up there on top of Mount Nebo. And you can commit adultery and think everything's fine, but there's a scar that you will bring to your life and to your home. Now listen, if you are living in sin this morning, some kind of sexual sin, and God is not dealing with you, then you need to be saved. And if you are living in sin this morning and God is dealing with you, you need to get right. Because God's long-suffering won't last forever. And if you have truly been saved, then you ought to do everything to seek the grace of God to forgive you, to cleanse you, and allow you to live a holy and righteous life. You say, Pastor, give it to them. What a great song. Give it to them, Pastor. Glad. I hope they heard this morning. No, I hope you heard this morning. I hope I heard this morning. Because understand where David's heart began. 
He didn't just one day walk into an adulterous relationship. When someone says, well, my husband committed adultery, I'm thinking as a pastor, what happened way back here? Let his heart get cold and sensitive. Stop spending time with God. Began to watch movies and listen to certain kinds of music that he thought he would never entertain himself on, and it gets more and more and more progressive. And before you know it, he's committed adultery. People think, I will never, ever, ever do that. Then walk closely with the Lord, because let him who thinks he stands be careful lest he fall. Some of you, there used to be a time when you walked closely with the Lord. There used to be a song in your heart. You used to look forward to meeting with God in the morning. And you can't remember the last time your heart was like that. And you are ripe for the evil of this day. Heads are bowed, eyes are closed this morning. You say, Pastor, I haven't committed adultery. I certainly have never murdered anyone. But I will admit I don't love Jesus the way I used to. Well, bring it to the Lord Jesus. Ask him to cleanse you, to wash you. And if you've been lazy in the work of the Lord and your fellowship with God has been less than consistent, just remember an unguarded strength is a double weakness. Don't let that pride overrun your heart today. King David never thought he would have committed adultery and murder, but he let his heart get cold. Maybe you're here and you've never been saved. You say, I don't know if I would go to heaven. That just means you're not saved. For the promise of God, because of what Jesus did, he died for every sin that man has ever committed. He bore them in his own body on the cross so God can say, whoever will call upon the name of Jesus will be saved. And if you will take God at his word, believe what he said, the Bible calls that faith. You are acknowledging that God can't lie. You're acknowledging that he will keep his promise, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. If you will say, Lord Jesus, save me, then he will. Our Holy Father, You told us that we are to be holy because you are holy. And we are living in an age that is covered over with evil and sensuality, and not just in these United States, but wherever we travel in the world. But you told us these days would come, that the coming of the Son of Man would be like the days of Noah and the days of Lot, days of impropriety and lawlessness and violence and immorality, and yes, sexual perversion as in Lot's day. But thank you that where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more, that your grace is sufficient. So help us as a church to shine bright in the midst of darkness. We ask it in Jesus. Moral purity is often lost with the choices we make with our eyes. And we must also remember that God can forgive sin, but he does not erase the laws of sowing and reaping. To listen again to today's message, use the Search the Scriptures app for smartphones and tablets, or visit us online at searchthescriptures.org. Also remember that you can order a CD or DVD copy by calling Search the Scriptures at 877-787-7478 and requesting program Avoiding Moral Failure. Tomorrow, Pastor Carl's wife Audrey is in this time slot with her program for women, Mothering from the Heart. 
You can hear more of Audrey's messages on the Search the Scriptures app found on the iTunes and Google Play Store. Also, check out Audrey's podcast, Rare But Real, on Apple, Google, and Spotify podcast platforms. You can also listen to her podcast at searchthescriptures.org. We hope that you will join us next week as we continue to Search the Scriptures.